Hey there. Who are you? Are you Samir? I'm not Samir. You're not Samir. Then who are you? I'm Corey Knight. And I'm a friend of Nathan's. So how, do you, how do you know that we're friends? Where do we know each other? <laughs> uh, so we met um, back in, what year was it? I think it was 2018 or was it 2019? It was 2019. It might have, <laughs> I, I might have passed you by on the street in 2018 and we just didn't know about it. Yeah. Yeah. So me and Nathan met when we were both working at the West Edmonton Mall in the World Water Park as a robotics patrol. So that's where we have our origin. And uh, we had some pretty interesting conversations just in the break room and stuff about different, you know, different philosophies and beliefs we both had. And the guy got the idea that Nathan was a very intelligent guy and very, you know, like intrigued guy. It was a guy that wanted to like talk to other people and always get to know what was going on inside their heads. So, so I was really excited at the opportunity to come on to his podcast. Do you have like a, a memory of what your first impression of me was? Oh, geez. <laughs> I can't really. It was such a busy place. And it was always just such a chaotic, hectic job that like, I can barely remember my first impression of anyone I met there. But in the end, like I, I generally had this idea that Nathan was a really cool, really clever guy. And just he just he really wanted to like dig into other people's brains. And I, I thought it was interesting. Um, I will say like right away that I never had this feeling like he had any kind of agenda. He wasn't really trying to project any kind of idea or really contest any idea that I had. Like he was just kind of genuinely interested in what, and not just me, but like anybody he talked to, like he was genuinely interested just to know like what everybody else around him thought. And and I thought that was very interesting. And I couldn't really, I'm usually decently good at reading people and seeing like where they're, what they're after and like what they're kind of thinking in their own head. But that's really difficult with Nathan because he's, he's very quiet when he's like listening to other people and he's really takes it all in and you can see him kind of a hamster wheel inside <laughs> turning as he tries to process all of the, uh, the different ideas and stuff like that weigh them against his own beliefs and stuff he doesn't really show you know his own opinions or his own like you know uh, prejudices if he has any or anything like that until he's really fully weighed everything and uh, I always thought that was very cool and very interesting about you Nathan. Do you mind if I, I share the the story of sort of like the first real bit of interaction that I remember with you? Yeah absolutely okay. I probably remember it better than I do because I was just so, so like I, I, so I, 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 would, I would say like usually the, these first interactions happen as a result of we're paired together on slides, getting to topics about like what our favorite video games are. Uh, but I, I would say like for me, the moment where things went a little bit deeper was I had begun to search for information on my coworkers through Facebook just as a way to get to know them better, have some right. good talking points to bring to the table. And I saw your Facebook feed and there were a number of articles and opinions that you shared that were I very hot topic. <laughs> were. And I thought to myself, I've got to be really careful not to screw around <laughs> with this guy. Because if I do, he's probably going to block me. No. He's probably going to hate me. No, no. And so I'm just going to go to the post of his that's the most open to a conversation. I typed in my comment. I, I believe it was about internet service providers. I think it was. I think it was about net neutrality or something yeah, like that. Net neutrality. Actually, yeah. I, I wrote up a, a little comment asking a, a bit of a question and correcting your grammar because it kind of <laughs> sucked in that post. <laughs> and what I got in response was an apocalyptic rant. <laughs> 
<laughs> about well, like uh, your opinions, right? How you didn't appreciate some random stranger coming onto your Facebook feed because you didn't well, actually know it was me. Yeah. So Nathan was using um, kind of a, 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 a sock puppet sort of almost, I wouldn't quite say a sock puppet, but like an account that, that wasn't really like, didn't have like his face on it or anything like that. So I didn't recognize right away who it was that was actually commenting on this and everything. And so I misjudged the tone as well. And when I read it later again, I, I realized that it wasn't con as confrontational as I thought it was at the, at the first you're just like expecting it. it to be confrontational. Right. Well, that's what people are used to, especially like what I'm used to, like on the internet, kind of like putting my wild ideas out there. Is I'm usually, I'm very used to like confrontation and stuff like that and having to kind of assume a defensive stance right out of the gate sort of thing, especially with taboo beliefs that I have and everything. And so, so I kind of just assumed. <laughs> and uh, and then I quickly later realized, uh, especially as Nathan messaged me and said, hey, by the way, it's me. It's me no, from work. No, actually, like, oh. I... I, I went to you directly face to face and I said, it's actually me. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That was right. Yeah. That happened at work. I, I, I was, I was tempted to like keep up the charade. My memory is also very awful. I, I was tempted to keep up the charade for as long as I could just, you know, just for the humor of it, just, just, just for <laughs> the humor of it. But then I, I figured you eventually block me and yeah. I, I didn't want that to happen. So was there uh, anything that you saw on my Facebook that like kind of intimidated you just cause you were like, Oh, like I didn't realize this guy was such a, extremists like such a i would say about 80 to 90 percent of what you posted on your facebook <laughs> account was intimidating <laughs> oh i'm sorry you felt that way <laughs> that's okay you should really start sharing more pictures of puppies yeah, yeah. that makes people kind of swallow the manifesto a bit easier that way yeah yeah i think that's like that's how the great ones have always done it you know that's how jim jones has always done it. it's how that's how Goebbels always did. They always gotta have like a cute girl or like a like a cute little girl waving a flag or like a cute puppy or something like that, just to just to help you swallow the insane ideas a bit easier, you know? Yeah. But anyways, like how have you been doing over the past week? How's God been working in your life? So myself personally, I'm not like I am somewhat religious and I do have like somewhat spiritual philosophies that I adhere to. However, I'm not, um, I don't have, I don't, my, my philosophies don't include a theistic God, like any kind of like singular or, or even multiple gods or anything like that. But I do believe in like something, some kind of force guiding me, some kind of energy. I don't really want to disclose too much about my personal like spiritual beliefs, but um, I say that I do sometimes feel something kind of guiding me around and sort of helping me determine my path and everything. And yeah, in the past week, honestly, I haven't felt much of it. <laughs> sadly because to be honest it's just been a really grim time i think and i think everyone's kind of feeling starting to feel overwhelmed by this whole situation that we have right now in 2020 with this episode being recorded on what is this now it's uh april 8th 2020 yep. and yeah it's just we're at the height of it now i feel like the covid 19 scenario and it's just yeah i haven't really been going anywhere or doing anything a couple of days ago my significant other was able to come over and stay for a little bit and so that was quite nice i know everyone is kind of like finds that as the taboo thing right now like kind of seeing each other when you're not living in the same household that are we both in like perhaps quarantining and stuff like that very cautiously and she's been isolating and I've been isolating right now I no longer live in Edmonton I live actually out in British Columbia and Fort Steele and uh, so yeah it's a very rural area and there's like I don't think there's even a confirmed case within the area so far just but, yeah, gotta be careful very careful yeah everyone has to be very vigilant and I think that's what we've been doing. And, and so that was really quite a nice relief as well. I think mentally it's some, important to to balance self-isolation with 
like like the health factor of self-isolation and keeping safe from COVID-19, it's important to balance that with your mental health. And, you know, I think if someone needs to, you know, go out and like whatever, just like go to a park or something like that and just like have a friend walk with you two meters away. <laughs> it's something, right? It's it's something to at least, you know, kind of alleviate that mental health problem that we're having right now. Because I think I even saw the other day on news of a couple of people having committed suicide and self-isolation because, you know, isolation is already a problem for people with depression. So this is really only magnifying that problem and making it more difficult for people with depression to really normalize their situation because they can't normalize their situation. I, I would say that sort of leads into my own bit of how I believe God's been working my life over the past week. I'm very introverted. I'm totally fine with living alone. This whole idea of a quarantine doesn't really bother me, but I do know that it bothers other people. And so a couple nights ago, I got a text from a friend of mine who I haven't spoken to in over a year. And th and that's because like, there's certain people in your life you don't really want to associate with anymore, because right they're toxic or because they're not really offering you any benefit in life. And and for him in particular, there was a, a spirit of inappropriateness about him that I felt like it wasn't mentally healthy for me to be hanging out with him. Right. And so I kind of just let myself be fine with letting that friendship die off. But then I got a, a text from him a couple nights ago saying, hey, and I'm like, okay, uh, this is interesting. I've, I've reached out to many people during this crisis, but like, this is the first time someone has reached out to me. And so mm. I texted back, we ended up hanging out with each other in person, watched a movie on Disney plus, uh, had some mm -hmm. really productive conversations with each other, even though there was still like that theme of inappropriateness that was still riding throughout the conversations it was still good. And I think I still need to be discerning in how I spend my time with this guy. But I think for now, I'm going to do what I can to continue being in his life because he's, he's, he's the kind of person who is very extroverted. He wants to be in social communication with other people. And if I'm right, so this is a difficult time for him. Yeah. And you're kind of appreciating like that challenge that he's in right now. Yeah. So let's get into the, the topic of today's episode and why I've asked you to come on to this podcast. We're going to be talking about the validity of Marxism versus yeah. capitalism. Let's start out by explaining each other's perspectives of how we came to embrace these ideologies. Sure. So just real quick, I just want to say like, I, so I, I was fairly unfamiliar with Nathan's podcast until a couple of nights ago when he asked me to, if I'd like to be a guest on an, an episode. And so then I looked at a couple episodes and uh, I listened to episode one and pretty early on, I was really impressed actually, because you and Samir, like you briefly touched on a time in your life when you had to rely on, on welfare. And I remember Samir saying like, you really want to tell them that? And you're like, yeah, why not? And I was like, <laughs> you know, like I kind of admired that. So you know, and I'm really glad that you weren't uh, ashamed to to admit that because there's a big stigma around, you know, the social safety net and uh, and people who use it almost as much as there is a stigma about socialism, like in general. So so I want to say thank you for having me on here to talk a little bit more about socialism, because it's something that is definitely taboo. And that I think definitely people need to take a second look at and kind of consider how it's helped, maybe not their lives, but maybe people that they love and stuff like that. And so it's definitely something I am excited to talk about anytime I can. <laughs> 
with people who are open as I know you are to, to different ideas and you know how did you come to embrace the ideal of socialism so yeah that started for me years ago when I was younger actually I was uh, briefly a part of a foster care home and so I was kind of familiarized with government programs pretty early on <laughs> and eventually I was no longer in a foster care home and I had uh, the opportunity to live with my mother and stuff like that and so, so that was uh I was kind of familiarized with how the government can sometimes be there to support people when when they need it and stuff like pretty early on. And then I was a sci-fi nerd pretty young. Like when I was about eight, I was getting really into sci-fi and uh, I discovered Star Trek. And, you know, I remember very distinctly, like in a Next Generation, there was one episode where Picard is explaining to this guy who came out of like a cryotube he's like this guy from the 21st century who's somehow been frozen in time and they find him floating around in space and Picard has to explain to him that all of his stocks are gone and that all of his you know all of his assets all his wealth that he used to, to freeze himself in space and everything like that to preserve his life it's all gone because the monetary system has since been abolished <laughs> and you know there's there's no money anymore and everyone kind of does everything um the best of their ability and they all like for each other and they all support each other and that was a really mind-blowing idea to me and like ever since then I've kind of been fascinated by politics I was fascinated by politics like just by being a Star Trek fan early on (laughs) it's kind of snowballed from there like just you know like having the interest of teachers just because I was such a weird kid (laughs) and getting to have like really engaging conversations with them like a really young age and so that's kind of where my romanticism with socialism probably started honestly was just being a Star Trek kid (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and um yeah like it's sort of shaped a few times like uh, become less radical and more radical over the years and stuff but currently you know i consider myself like at least a democratic socialist and probably my biggest hero is like i'd say che Guevara and other heroes that kind of outlie from that entirely like jfk and stuff even though he's himself kind of opposed to those those principles and stuff but uh but yeah, I've just always been a politics nerd, and I've always kind of ended up leaning left because um, also being a history nerd, like I, I was a big fan of World War II and stuff like that very on as well, and uh, I was a cadet and all this other stuff, so I got to studying fascism quite a bit and studying Adolf Hitler, and, and you know, like it's, it's something that's very consistent with fascism is its opposition to communism and vice versa, and I think today, especially by virtue of Hollywood and kind of mass, you know, entertainment media, like it's often portrayed that World War II was won by the United States and by capitalism and stuff like that, like a capitalist nation that took out Germany. But honestly, if you look at the numbers and any kind of history fan can tell you, like any novice historian can tell you that it was honestly the Soviet Union that that ended that war. You know, it was the red flag that was planted over the Reichstag, not the American flag. It was it was the Soviet Union that really paid an incredibly awful price, <laughs> incredibly uh, daunting price of human life to to defeat the Germans and to defeat fascism in Europe. And they totally did it on their own. No, I wouldn't say that. But I'd say that if the Western Front hadn't existed, if Britain had only been able to play defense, if Operation Normandy, Operation, or sorry, Operation Overlord um, had never occurred, and the Americans had never become involved. I do think it would be a matter of time before the Soviets ended that war on their terms. Uh, I, I think that there was no hope for Germany the second they declared war on the Soviet Union, and that their nation just was much more prepared and much more committed to total war than the German society was at that point. And 
it was always going to be that way. You know, like even if Germany had not been challenged by the Western Front, and even if they had pushed as far as the Ural Mountains, I think that there was never going to be a chance for them to win. The Soviets were just way too... There was too much landmass? Well, no, like I think just, just their will was so much stronger. Like they, Germans... They just like the the the, the, Ger- the fascist. I shouldn't say Germans. I should say the fascist policies uh, that they had was just to you know keep women at home to be good mothers and stuff like that. And they you know they didn't want to commit the same way that collectivist nation like Soviet Union really was going to commit from the start. Like you know they just everyone they had everything they had was was on the table to be sacrificed, and that was something that Germany was just never going to do. That no fascist nation, I think, would ever be willing to do because you know they just they don't have that sort of solidarity, that sort of commitment to each other to to win something like that. Wasn't there an attempt to foster that collective ideal though by propaganda? Yeah, there was actually, and it was actually from I think the Reich's propaganda ministry by Joseph Goebbels because he was actually himself uh, quite enamored with Winston Churchill, <laughs> and he uh, he really loved Winston Churchill's speeches and stuff like that, and he thought the idea of total war, since the British were doing it, and since you know he saw Winston Churchill so capable of convincing the British people to commit to total war, he thought that that was something possible in Germany, and he often tried to convince Hitler of that, but Hitler often reminded him that you know that was just not consistent with Mein Kampf. It wasn't consistent with the responsibilities of, of a good Aryan race. It wasn't consistent with the science of Nazism or fascism. You know, it just it was, they were going to continue the war on their terms and to the standards of living that they had known forever. And that was part of the cell of fascism as well, is that, you know, like we're going to pull ourselves out of this by making others pay for everything. You know, we're going to make others, you know, sacrifice we're not going to sacrifice our own stuff you know like we're Aryans we're not going to give up our homes and our spare metal and stuff like that you know we're, we're going to win and we're going to do it our way and we're not going to lower our standard of living we're going to raise our standard of living because Hitler's inferior <laughs> so there was definitely people who wanted to adopt a, more policies of total war more commitment to the war effort especially later on but I think it was too little too late and there was just never going to be a way at that point that far down the road to even convince the average German citizen that was a necessary thing to do, you know. And indeed, towards the end, more Germans were trying to broker a deal with the United States and get into some kind of <laughs> witness protection or, you know, something like that, or, or to flee to, you know, South America rather than to commit more of their personal assets to the war effort. Whereas even when the Germans made it as far as Stalingrad, you see socialist officers and high league officials in the Soviet Union sacrificing their personal family members, sacrificing their personal assets and stuff like that, just to try and combat the invasion. And so like you see, there's a value of personal sacrifice as part of socialism that's not part of uh, fascism. And that's sort of why, at the very least, socialism trumps fascism. Well, I think like, you know, like that, yeah, it's been proven that it does and it did. And I think, you know, like if you, I'm just saying like, that's part of what it also pushed me towards, you know, uh, a romance with, with Marxism is, uh, is just studying like the Battle of Kursk and stuff like that and the Battle of Stalingrad and just realizing that Marxism essentially provided the Soviets with a sense of patriotism and unity and solidarity that just was often seen in the Reich 
but didn't make German soldiers as committed enough to the war effort as Soviet soldiers were. You know, like they just were not going to sacrifice as much and they weren't normalized with sacrifice. They weren't some, it wasn't something they were used to. It wasn't something they were accustomed with having to be hungry, having to, to give stuff up in order to, uh, to fight, in order to, to win, you know, because it is true that, you know, in a communist system, people will have to sacrifice a little bit, you know, and, and I think that that is necessary because in a nation that is decadent, a nation of decadence like America or Germany at the time, or any other kind of nation that relies so openly on just having, you know, nice things and just having a really posh style of life, you know, like they're not going to be able to adopt total war. They're not going to be able to get through difficult times as easily. They're going to struggle a lot more. I think you're seeing that a lot right now in America and Canada because of our decadence of the last couple of decades. I think if Canada right now were a Marxist nation with a collectivist ethos, I imagine like we had the solidarity to organize proper rent strikes and stuff like that. And imagine if we're able to do more to support each other but instead we have embraced capitalism for you know a couple decades now and we've embraced the almighty dollar and that's given us toilet paper shortage (laughs) and brawls in the supermarkets you know it's given us a much weaker divided society so then if i might ask up until now why do you think socialism hasn't been able to trump capitalism embargo (laughs) america's uh you know ever since its uh, ability to have benefited so much from the events of world war ii actually is ties in quite nicely and you know without having sacrificed as much in their industry and their manufacturing without having to recover as much by rebuilding having to commit so much to rebuilding and you know like having been able to be involved and to gain so much from being in that conflict but also not having to have been set back by it as much as every other country was really put them ahead economically for decades after that. And so their ability to embargo communist powers, if not even declare proxy wars on them, has really made it incredibly difficult for those nations to prosper. And, you know, it's what certainly held Cuba back, despite them having, you know, incredibly high rates of literacy and incredibly, like, you know, like they're, they have an incredibly high percentage, I think even the highest percentage of doctors per capita in the entire world and the universities per capita in the entire world for sure. And despite being a very educated country, a country with a lot of potential, embargoes on it for decades have held it back like incredibly. <laughs> like, and, and so I think that's one thing that certainly made it more difficult because uh, the, the one thing that communism does require is a international community. It does require globalism to a degree for countries to work together and to have trade and stuff like that and, uh, to support each other. And so it makes it very difficult for a, a communist country to prosper in a world where there are so many capitalist countries, you know, and imposing such limiting trade laws on them. That's certainly made it difficult for those countries to, to continue. I don't think that is evidence of an inherent failure in the system itself. So why has China been able to do so well? Well, China, I would say, is not entirely a uh, proper Marxist nation at all. I'd say it is more of a crony nation which combines the worst aspects of both communism and <laughs> capitalism. It's certainly an oligarchy. And also their, their willingness to engage in corporate espionage and, to, and just general espionage against other you know, competitors like of their state-owned companies like is, is definitely beyond what most countries, I think, are willing to do just to have an edge. And, and also, of course, you know, there's the, the factor of their GDP being so high because of their population and because of their land mass and their access to resources and stuff like that. So they're, I think they're going to be ahead of everybody generally on under, under any system, you know, that they were adopt because it's just, it's just a lot to, to work with, you know, it's, 
it's difficult not to have impressive results with that many people you know at your disposal and stuff so why wouldn't a country like cuba just be able to network with other socialist nations across the world and they could trade amongst themselves well i mean trade is a logistical issue of course and especially for a, a nation like cuba which is an island nation so their neighbors in the caribbean are really their their number one potential trade partners especially the united states unfortunately <laughs> because the United States is a neighboring country. If you can say any island nation has a neighboring country, it's you know the country that is closest to them and has the most accessible ports from their from their side and everything. And so the United States is really the country that they would be reliant on for trade in any circumstance. And besides that, there really just aren't that many socialist nations, especially not within uh, South and North America. Most of them are either in Asia or uh, there's a lot of socialist kind of territories and communes, if you will, like in the Middle East and in Europe and stuff, but there's just not really enough that is logistically capable, that the Cuba is logistically capable of trading with right now, you know, like that any country is logistically capable of trading with any socialist country because their their ability to to network with each other is again limited by you know different channels different waters and stuff like that which cross through international organizations like nato or the un that have imposed sanctions on them (laughs) so it really all that stuff makes it incredibly difficult and of course you know having limited trade partners limits you like just there like if you're not able to trade with everybody that limits what you can trade for and what you can trade to them and how much they want and you know like being able to trade with everybody is really what, you know, sets everyone else ahead of most socialist nations today, unfortunately. But that's, that's like what's happening right now. Uh, what about like, say, back during the Cold War, when Russia and the entire Soviet Union was communist? I believe there was uh, support for countries like Cuba. Yeah, there, there was especially because I mean, I, and and I think that um, that's shown, sorry, did you want to, I, I kind of cut you off there. Like, like I, I would say, like, if that was the start of an ideal situation, why didn't it continue on from there? Why didn't more countries take a look at the Soviet Union and places like Cuba and debatably China and look to them as inspirations for how they could move forward? Like, at the very yeah. least in Europe. And they did. There was many like far left organizations and militias and stuff like that in Europe and the United States in the 60s. And a lot of them were even quite popular. The Soviet Union, uh, for sure, was the major power of Marxism at the time. And that eventually was eroded by like from within. America was able to do some good police work, some good spy work. And they found people that were more corrupted and more keen to cut a deal. And so that's kind of how the Soviet Union was sort of eroded from within. At its peak, it certainly did support uh, Cuba and other nations and Vietnam and other nations like other socialist powers, big and small, through, you know, supply of weapons, through supply of uh, food and, and all kinds of other stuff, you know, just through trade and general support. And so that did spread quite a bit at the time. There were a lot of nations that rose up to uh, to try and spread those principles and stuff. At the same time, you know, the United States is also a great power. And, you know, this is where proxy wars came in, in the 60s and throughout Africa and, and throughout Asia, especially tons and tons of nations going to war with each other, sponsored by either the USSR, or the United States to kill each other <laughs> and to try and push their own beliefs. And I think the reason why America eventually won out in, in that is just because of their capability at that time Sorry, I'm not quite prepared for that. (laughs) Let me think about that for a moment. 
Okay. So if I might ask, was Gorbachev then a plant by the Americans? No, he wasn't certainly not a plant, but Gorbachev was certainly um, more willing to, to assist the United States than to, than to stay true to, to Marxist ideals. You know, he was certainly a guy that was not at all fighting the erosion of the Soviet Union, he kind of facilitated it quite a bit. Was he a pansy? I mean, that certainly would not have happened uh, under Stalin or anybody like that. But no, I mean, he was just a different leader with different ideas, you know, different values and stuff. And so that's kind of how it only takes one person, right, leading a country to take it a completely different direction. And if they have given enough power and they do it quickly enough, it just it can really reshape a nation. As to why, like, those countries didn't network, I mean, they certainly did. And they certainly, I think, did their best to, to support one another, however, like, the Soviet Union was challenged by a lot of the powers of Europe as well as the United States. And so they had a lot on their plate at the time. And I think they're mostly hoping to to train other nations and to sort of advise other nations the way that the United States does often, you know, hopefully to try and commit to a revolution themselves and, you know, to, to organize themselves against their enemies and stuff. But I mean, that's been tried by the United States in the Middle East a thousand times, and it's not a very successful practice, you know, so. In hindsight, that might just be, maybe there wasn't enough support from the Soviet Union, you know, and maybe there wasn't uh, enough. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't really prepared for this. That's this totally kind of topic. fine. That's totally fine. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't really prepared at all for like, uh, like talking about like. What did you think we were going to be talking about? Well, I thought you were talking about like the like more of like a present day thing. Well, like we, a, we kind of, in order to understand how things are going to work in the presence, we kind of need to look back and ask ourselves. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, as for how it, like, it's a very complicated and broad subject as to how communism kind of declined. And I don't think it can be attributed just to like, uh, like any one blanket answer, really. Like, you really have to go through step by step. Like, we could do a whole podcast about just how, how uh, the United States combated communism and stuff and, and, and other nations as well, like the UK and, and West Germany and stuff, they all committed to that pretty hard. And uh, understandably, because I think like JFK and a lot of the other you know Western leaders at the time of the 60s were all fearing that communism was the next fascism. And so that they were trying to get like the leg up like they didn't with fascism. They were trying to do right this time by stamping out an ideology that they saw as potentially dangerous before it got out of hand rather than and wait until later, like they had with with Hitler and fascism. So yeah, I would say that um, communist nations have always kind of been held back by propaganda in the West and and by the West's ability to sanction those nations and to cut them off. And indeed, like Soviet Union kind of recognized that right away. And I think that's why they ended up becoming the Iron Curtain that they did, because they knew that if American influence got in, it would probably lead to the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which it eventually did. So it's difficult to know who your allies are in a world like that. You know, it's it's difficult to coordinate with your allies when, you know, it's a spy game. And it's, it's a, it's, you know, the Cold War was all about, you know, spies and, and misinformation and stuff like that. So it was difficult, I think, for a great power like that to trust where and how to spend its resources and where and how to, to spread its influence, you know. And I'm not 100% like in support of what the Soviet Union was and what it stood for either. Like my beliefs are more in line with how I think it can be implemented more than how it has been implemented in the past. If I might ask, how do you think it can be implemented? How can socialism be properly implemented, especially here in Canada in this day and age when everyone is kind of losing their minds? 
Right. So, yeah, like I, I think that it can and has been implemented a lot in since the Cold War, actually, and by even Western countries. People have often say that it's it's always failed and it's failed every time in the Soviet Union and China, etc. But it's they often overlook the fact that times it's worked is like in the 30s with FDR and the New Deal. It's It worked in 1962 when JFK nationalized American steel. And I think it worked in your lifetime and many others' lifetime when they have to have social security to protect them in a time of need. It certainly worked in Sweden and Sweden, a lot of the Nordic nations and a lot of the um, Baltic nations have embraced socialism to incredibly great success and incredible results and raise their national level of happiness and their standard of living quite a bit, despite being, you know, countries that were starting out pretty late in that game. And so I think with current events like COVID-19, we're also starting to see like the benefits of socialism in, uh, in our healthcare system. In Canada, you know, we have an NHS and most Canadians we have an NHS, a national healthcare system. And countries which I think have embraced private healthcare systems are struggling in a crisis like this and in other ways too like i think socialism is is providing quite a lot of relief to people right now uh, we always complain about taxes we always resent having to pay into the welfare system especially because you know conservatives have long planted this idea that we are paying to support lazy people but right now millions of people are depending on welfare and employment insurance and and i think we're all very quite glad that that it's there that we did that that we paid into that system and that it's available now we have that ability to to isolate like this without people starving as for an nhs uh, i think an nhs works much better than private healthcare and i think that it's been quite proven in a lot of the data that's coming out of different countries with different systems right now uh, with this kind of crisis. Uh, Al Velshi, I was watching another the other night, uh, a Canadian economist and a capitalist himself said that uh, private healthcare just simply doesn't work and that no profit earning company would ever willingly insure a sick person or an old person and actually provide them with any kind of real coverage. You you just don't do it. It's, it's a market failure. And those are all his exact words. And I think that's makes sense because, you know, it's, it's all about, it's all about providing what someone needs rather than providing what someone needs then <laughs> and taking from them, right? Like you can't give them what they need if it costs them everything that they have. I think right now, private healthcare facilities from what I've seen are, you know, currently competing as they always have. And they're trying to retain all their private data on their clients and, and they're all trying to retain all their equipment stockpiles and raise the value of their equipment. Whereas in Canada and rational nations in the world where we have an NHS, hospitals all over the country are openly sharing their data and their information. They're all openly sharing and coordinating their supplies and it's saving lives and it's preventing the spread a lot. And it's, it's, it's making a huge difference just being able to have a unified healthcare system that is tackling the situation together and, and coordinating and, and working together instead of having all these separate different health insurance firms and health facilities and stuff like that. It's just not a way to handle something as big of an, like, as, it's not a way to, to have a scope of the big picture and to handle a, a large scale crisis like a pandemic. And so that's, that's what we've already got in place. Is there any way that you think that we as a nation can go further? Absolutely. I, I, I mean, definitely there's more that we can do. There's, there's tons of things. I think people have, you know, like I often like use um, historical precedents to sell uh, socialism and Marxism, but I don't think that's the only thing people should think about. I mean, 
there was a time when in the United States, fire departments were all privately owned and they're all private institutions. And if you wanted to stop your house from burning down, you had to be a member of their club. And, you know, and we're glad now that I think obviously that a lot of things are public and publicly owned and are socialized and nationalized like fire departments and stuff like that, that we, that we rely on. But there's certainly more that we rely on that is still not nationalized, that is still not being treated as a public utility. And I think one of those things definitely is as internet service. Today, all of our internet infrastructure has been bought and paid and built by the governments, bought and paid and built by tax dollars, by our dollars, people's dollars. But it is all owned by private internet service providers, which is baffling to me, (laughs) especially... uh, you know, this is this is a situation in the United States and in Canada, not so much in Europe. There's a lot of nations in Europe where either the internet is to a degree subsidized and owned by the nation, or it was entirely built by the companies that, that uh, monetize them. But Canada and America are really unique in the fact that tax dollars built our networks, our fiber optic networks, our coaxial networks, but they are owned by private companies. And I think now, especially, we're noticing just how important the internet communication network is and you know how fundamental it is in the modern age and how much we really ought to consider it a basic human right millions of people wouldn't be able to work right now if it weren't for these networks if it wasn't for our ability to communicate we wouldn't be able to share the information worldwide like we have been it is absolutely a, a fundamental necessity of a modern globalized world that we live in and i think nationalizing the internet and making it properly the uh, the property of a government and and you know a public utility that everyone has a right to is something that that ought to be done and that really people everywhere would benefit from and you know the america's policies of trying to get rid of net neutrality or I should say rather the american government's policies of trying to get rid of net neutrality has just been a really awful thing to see because it it threatens the the inherent principles of the internet i think the internet itself is a commune where everyone shares everything freely and everyone should have the same amount of access to everything as everybody else it's about coming together and being able to share everything we can and everything we need to uh to move forward as a as a society as a as a world and so i think that's why it's difficult to impose legislation in one country on the internet it really destroys what the internet is it's a global community it's a commune and it ought to be nationalized the world over and it ought to be in the hands of people not corporations and so from your perspective what does the ideal plan for nationalization of the internet look like? Like, how much would you be willing to pay for the internet's unlimited data caps? Well, I mean, if we were if we were to really truly nationalize these networks, and then I think we would have to declare it a, a public utility. And so what that would look like is basically it would look like water, the way we currently all have access to the same amount of water. We would all have the same amount of bandwidth. There would be no premium priority of bandwidth to one household or another. Everyone has water. Everyone has as much water as they need, as much water as they want even. When we declare internet a a public utility, it will free up our networks, our infrastructure, our, our, our internet infrastructure from having to have all these complicated systems of bandwidth throttling, of limiting access and stuff like that to certain places that don't pay as much or whatever. If we all got rid of that, 
our networks would actually improve in performance and, and they would actually, they, it would provide people a better access, a better speed. It would give everybody the same amount of access to internet as they have to water. You know, it, it would really become a public utility that we all share equally. And I think that would be a pretty amazing thing. As for cost, I mean, it would probably just be in the hands of the uh, state institution that was put in place of maintaining that network. So just kind of like, uh, like in BC right now, we have, you know, like BC Hydro and that's kind of like the big public power company that provides everyone their electricity and stuff like that. And so the prices are determined then by that ministry's ability to maintain things and how much that really costs them and equalizing it throughout the entire community, you know? So I generally think the price would go down as well as the performance going up because the price of just maintaining internet is not that high. However, the price of maintaining internet and then throttling it and controlling the access to different places complicates the process of providing internet to people. It makes it a higher cost thing. It makes it a higher cost uh, a task to basically create an infrastructure that is capable of throttling different people and, and you know improving access to some and, and restricting access for others and stuff like that. That really complicates the issue, and that's part of why I think internet is expensive in some places than others obviously there's also like you know it becomes more expensive in remote regions and stuff like that due to like coverage and stuff like that but i mean generally i think that if we were to nationalize it and treat it as a public utility you could expect it to become a much cheaper and much more high performance part of your life so what would you see as a fair price for paying for the internet i mean that would that would definitely depend on on where you live, just like any other public utility. Your community's access to power or, or water is definitely limited by the place that you live. So if you live out in like a rural region, a mountainous region like I do in the Coonies of British Columbia, you probably pay a bit more for internet, as we certainly do now with the private ownership, because we don't have direct optic fiber lines like we did in Edmonton, like I did in Edmonton. I think generally you could expect to pay about the same or lower probably if I don't, I'm not really an expert on, on how much it costs to maintain internet networks, but I know that, you know, it would probably be a lot less if we had a government thing looking over it and like a a frugal kind of institution, like overseeing the maintenance of those networks, it would certainly go down. But generally you probably pay about the same and a bit less than what you pay now, actually. I can't really put a number on it, like, because it really depends on where you live and, and internet you know, itself is, it's difficult to get places just like any other utility. The more of a rural or remote place that you live, the more difficult it is to provide that service to you. And that kind of influences the price of anything. I'm currently paying like $90 a month for my internet. I personally think that's a fair price. Well, like how, do you know how much like data you have and like what your speeds are average? Unlimited data. I don't remember the exact speed of it. Let me check that. If you go on um, Google, I think even if you just do like internet speed tests, they might be able to do like a quick kind of speed test for you. So I would say it's averaging about 30, 32 megabytes per second for download speed. And for upload speed, it's about 12 megabytes per second. Right. And so my, my internet right now, I'm living basically on like a, like a, it's almost farmland out by uh, Fort Steele. If anyone's familiar with it, it's a part of BC that's close to Cranbrook, BC. And uh, it's, uh, it's like a heritage town is across this bridge from me. So it's literally like a place that's just 
it's off the beaten path and it's it's uh, it's not very industrialized it's not very like commercialized or anything it's a very agrarian kind of community and yeah there's there's a touristy kind of heritage town park across the bridge from where I live. And so we don't have optic fiber. I don't think we even have coaxial around here. What we have is a satellite uplink internet. And so that it's very spotty, obviously, you know, and it's, it's, it's costly because for what you get, because it's, it's wireless and by nature and uh, it's doesn't perform as well. And it's a bit more difficult to coordinate. So it's more expensive and, you know, lower speed. I get about 15 megabytes a second for the same price. And so, like, that's at the best. That's, like, the ideal. It's very spotty and dependent on weather because of just how our network is set up. But generally, as for price, like, I mean, having it as a public utility and being that there's no competition in the public utility, the price would be lower because, you know, it's not like one service provider can provide, like, you know, like one government can provide you <laughs> better internet than another and therefore, like, price competition and stuff like that, price gouging happens because, that's actually more of the reality today of uh, internet service providing is that communities are locked into either one internet service provider or another that, you know, these internet service providing companies have kind of divvied up street by street, you know, as to which company has a monopoly on that house. And, you know, if a, you're one of those millions of people over the counter of the United States where you only, you only have option of one internet service provider, chances are they're going to price gouge you. You know, your chances are you're going to pay quite a lot until a competitor moves in. And, you know, if we're out to, if we only have one choice, why not have the choice of a government subsidized institution and treating it like a utility where we'll have better access to it. And, you know, we won't be price gouged like we would with a, a greedy company like that, you know, because certainly I can say, you know, a lot of internet service providers in Canada and the U.S. are quite greedy. <laughs> They're quite, quite used to price gouging. It's something that they do as a very common practice. And monopolies are generally the norm today when it comes to, uh, to the internet networks around the world or around especially Canada and the United States. And so your point is, if there's going to be a monopoly, at least let it be a responsible monopoly. Right. Well, I mean, like, it's not so much a monopoly. It's not really a money fountain if it's a public utility, right? There's not a lot of money in being a, a water company because it's a public utility. You can't throttle people. You can't gouge them. You can't restrict people's access to water without some kind of backlash from the government and it being like a very difficult thing, you know, like, so if we declared it a public utility, if we nationalize the internet, it would make it easier on a lot of people who are currently only have one option anyway. And that option is price gouging them and throttling them and restricting their access based on how much they're willing to cough up. So I, I think it would certainly be an improvement for most people. Two questions that I, I, I sort of want to ask in, in response to this type of scenario. Do you think that there would still be motivation for innovation of, I don't know, getting internet to be at a higher speed? while also being able to lower the cost. And if we were to switch over from multiple privately owned companies to a, a single government-based utility corporation, wouldn't that cause a lot of people to get put out of a job because of like all the redundancies? Not at all. I think I don't think there would be a lot of redundancy, actually. Obviously, of course, there's always going to be a bit of a mix-up when you transition something that large, like an, like an industry that large, into a, a public utility. But I don't think there would be a lot of redundancy because for the most part, internet networking is a regional, like a localized thing. Most communities have their own offices and stuff like that, and their jobs are entirely devoted to the network in their area. So 
it's not really a thing that you could downsize to, you know, one provincial ministry of the internet taking care of all of Alberta's internet or all of California's internet or something like that. It certainly has to be done street by street, just like it is now. And, you know, that's, again, why I think it makes sense to potentially consider it as a utility because it's, it's very much operated like a utility and very much requires that many people as are working on it now to, to run it, even in its most efficient capacity. You know, like it, it requires a lot of hands on deck and it requires a, a different kind of branch in every neighborhood to be operating something as complicated as an internet communication network. As for like technology innovation, I think that socialism is proven that it is capable of science and technology innovation. I mean, you know, like the United States is obviously has the claim to fame, the boast that, uh, that they put the first man on the moon, but Yuri Gagarin, a Soviet, was the first man in space. Sputnik was the first satellite that rotated the earth. And I think that with that, just because you remove a profit motive, there will still be people working for a government as treating the internet as a public utility who would push themselves to innovate, you know, and to improve the access for certain people. And certainly like that could be rewarded through the government as well. Maybe not to the extent as a free market can reward that sort of thing. But I think in a socialist society, we would all be living a much more altruistic pursuit of providing better things and providing more for each other rather than trying to improve a product to get a better profit. Because even even today, the profit motive doesn't encourage improvement a lot of the time. It just encourages profit motive. <laughs> so a lot of the time, service companies today will cut corners if it gets them more profit. You know, It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to try and improve the service or improve the technology. It means that you know, like they're going to do it in a way that makes them a lot of money. If they can sell something as new and better and people will buy it because it is evidently new and better, then that works. But if they find other ways to get their money up, the profit, you know, then they'll do that as well. And the other way might be devolving that network, you know, like finding a way to cut corners and to to make things more cost efficient for them, you know? So like Apple, a publicly traded corporation that's very much profit minded. It's not being innovative for the sake of trying to improve other people's lives. It's just I think from model to model, the iPhone doesn't really change that much. I don't think I'm the only person that believes that. I think Apple especially is a company that's a very good example of cutting corners. They outsource all their labor to very poor countries where they're in sweatshops manufacturing these phones. The conditions are so bad that people are jumping off the roof. And, you know, Apple will often boast about technical innovation and stuff like that, but they're honestly not the cutting edge of technology today. And they're not, you know, the smartest people in the room. They're often outperformed by competitors and stuff like that. They can sell something for a very high value based on style and based on image and stuff like that. It doesn't necessarily reflect the technological progression that they've made. Just it's good, it's good marketing is what it is. It's not good technology. It's not good science. It's just most of the time it's just people making something look new and, you know, their clients are willing to pay for that. This is changing tracks a little bit but like i think with socialism if you're going to be devoted to that particular ideology you have to believe that deep down inside people are altruistic would i be correct in making that kind of assumption 
are you going to kind of like do the uh, human nature argument or <laughs> I still well, hey, feel like it might be going that way. Hey, you, you prepared notes for a reason, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I've, it's a common argument against Marxism and socialism that it goes against human nature and that humans are inherently not altruistic. But I think that is a misguided notion. I think that the profit motive mutates human nature. It it manifests something there that wasn't there originally. The drive to be secure is certainly there. The drive to to be safe and to have what you need is certainly there. But the drive for excess, the drive to be above others, I don't think is a natural human element. I think naturally is much more in human nature for us to want to be together I think that's something else so that is being proven quite a bit right now by most people is is they realize how much they want to be part of a community, how much they want to come together and share what they have. And I think that naturally humans are more aligned towards working together than they are working against each other and competing. Certainly competition is always going to be in our spirit, but I think much more so at the end of the day, we like to pick up our person that you know like we may have knocked down or whatever we like to like we like to compete but if someone falls you know or if we make someone else fall we like to pick them up and and help them out you know and and say like you know good game or whatever but we uh we like to be part of a community we like to to work together and i think that you know altruism is definitely a necessary component of of marxism che Guevara, my one of my heroes i mentioned earlier is a famous quote where he said the most important attribute of a revolutionary is love and and i think that is definitely speaks to the nature of communism and, and historians and philosophers have often referred to che as the most complete human you know he was a guy who kind of did everything and gave up everything for what he believed and he was a very well-rounded person, and, and I think he's the epitome of what most people honestly want to be like, whether they admit it or not. We all want to be experts in the things that we know, and we all want to have the adoration of people. We all want to be feared sometimes, but overall, you know, love is the most important thing, and we all want to be loved, and we all want to have others that we love and care for and stuff. So it's not courage. It's not being strong. It's not anything like that. It's it's love that is the most necessary thing of being a human. So I think, yeah, altruism is definitely an important part of socialism. It's a necessity for socialism, and I don't think that means that it's a weakness. I, I don't think that's where socialism can fail. I think that's the only way that humanity can work is if we embrace altruism. And yeah, that's definitely goes back to like how I kind of fell into socialism. I think if the world genuinely did embrace socialism in an altruistic way, we could be living in a in the Star Trek future someday where everyone strives to do their best because of how it reflects them to their peers. I think that is a much stronger motive than money. So does that mean that Joseph Stalin loved the United States <laughs> altruistically well, <laughs> with his whole heart? He just wanted to help them out, man. Right. I mean, Stalin's a very interesting character. And Stalin also has a great quote that I thought of the other night, which was, within every cynic, there is a disappointed idealist. And I think Stalin was so challenged so many times throughout his life by having to steer a country after the process of a civil war, having to deal with the logistical challenges of the Soviet Union and its millions of citizens, having to take all of that challenge and then turn around and fight off one of the world's strongest war machines. <laughs> he certainly was a guy that was challenged quite a lot in his lifetime. And I think that's definitely made him cynical. And he's, 
I think he said that in his own words in a way. And so Stalin, I, I'm sure, like had quite a lot of animosity towards other nations, but he also had quite a lot of altruism towards other nations as well. He often tried to sponsor other communes and other people around the world who he saw as his allies. And he was determined to, to help as many people, I think, as he could. And he didn't really see the world as most capitalists do and as most kind of uh, right-wing politicians and leaders have seen the world. He saw it more of as, as a global community, you know, and as most communists do. And, and he genuinely, I think, would have enjoyed a, a world where there was no divisions. He, like the Soviet Union is famous for the Berlin Wall, but I mean, it's not a thing that is necessary in Marxism to have walls. It's certainly a thing necessary to work together and stuff. But the reality that he found himself in, that the Soviet Union found itself in, is that it had many enemies with private interests and they had to, to try and defend themselves against that. And unfortunately, it didn't work out for the Soviet Union. But, well, maybe not, unfortunately. Honestly, I'm not 100% on board with what the Soviet Union was and what it did and stuff like that. But I, I think that a lot of people are quick to judge the Soviet Union and quick to judge characters like Stalin. However, they do forget that he's a guy who sacrificed a lot to uh, to defeat one of the greatest villains of the modern age. <laughs> Including one of his sons. Pardon? Including one of his sons. Yeah, yeah, I think so, actually. They all contributed as much as they could. And, you know, they all sacrificed quite a lot of themselves in order to, to do what had to be done. But And, of course, America did as well sacrifice quite a bit. But I, I just think that if it came to the point of Germans on American soil, to the extent that it did as Germans on Soviet soil, America's will would have eroded much faster than a country that had a collectivist ethos like the Soviet Union. So if I might ask, do you think it's possible to be a capitalist and altruistic at the same time? Or do you think like capitalism will inevitably corrupt the true essence of what it means to be human? I think it is a perversion. I genuinely do believe that capitalism is a perversion. Certainly there's altruistic business owners out there who do their best to, to give back. But a lot of the time when you pull back the curtain, you'll find that that's really just PR. That's, that's you know, that's companies trying to, to encourage their consumers to believe in them. And, and that's a really gross thing <laughs> to, uh, to someone like me because they often twist social justice and they often twist uh, solidarity and, and uh, stuff like that to profit motive. They, they twist it to, to convince people to believe in, in their product. <laughs> rather than in each other and in the uh, solidarity itself. And, and so that's a very frustrating thing. Certainly someone could be could have altruistic beliefs despite being a business owner, despite owning property or whatever. But there's only so much you can do if you're doing from what you're profiting. Like if you're, there's only so much you can give if you're only giving from what you're making, right? And in order to create wealth, real tangible wealth under a capitalist system, it, it necessitates exploitation somewhere, whether that's exploitation of workers or exploitation of the consumers. To really get ahead, you need to exploit somebody. You need to exploit somebody and something, the environment, you know, whatever. So to then turn around and give back, I think it could maybe be a noble thing that the person thinks is really helping, but, you know, it, it's putting a Band-Aid after you've made the cut. It's helping after you've damaged something else. And so, you know, if Apple were to sponsor uh, some kind of rainforest restoration project, you have to keep in mind the rare earth mineral deposits where in Africa they've just decimated entire communities. They've destroyed the environment to incredible degrees just to mine the stuff that it takes to make the iPhones that Apple takes to 
make their money, you know? So it's, it's certainly difficult, I think, to be a true altruistic person in a capitalist society, unless your product is really a unique product. You know, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do to create such kind of a wealth without exploiting anything or anybody else. What, what about like, what if it's not necessarily exploitation? What if it's like a mutual benefit of you're trying to provide a service to someone and they're willing to pay you money in order to be able to use that kind of service? Well, I, I think that's just like exchanging of a service is, a, is almost a different thing. That's certainly something that works perfectly well under a communist or a socialist system as well. That could be one of the opportunities for a capitalist, I guess, to to be an altruistic person, to like live an altruistic lifestyle. But also, you know, that means that they are going to work for their entire life, which is not the dream of most capitalists. Most capitalists, I think, are striving to find a way out of the work pool, to, to find a way out of having to provide services to people. They're trying to find a way to automate things. They're trying to find a way to, uh, to get ahead. Also, I just remembered something uh, earlier about uh, the internet service providing thing we were on. It just kind of came back to me. Um, you were talking about like if we were to transition the internet into like a public utility, would that create layoffs? Inherently in capitalism, we have competition, which means that you know, we have companies vying for control of products and services. So right now we're looking at potentially a monopoly with Disney over the entertainment industry. I mean, every year it seems they acquire a new property, a new, you know, whether it's Fox or intellectual property. And every month, every movie that comes out, you know, in the top five movies, the highest earning movies of that month, one or two of them will be owned by Disney. And, you know, so competition inherent in capitalism makes it difficult to be altruistic as well, because when you're competing, eventually you're going to take someone over. Eventually you're going to gobble something up. You're going to win. And that creates layoffs. Um, when an internet service provider absolves another internet service provider, that loses a lot of people, a lot of jobs because they replace them with their people. And, you know, if we were to sort of nationalize and unionize everything, then people's job security would improve. They would not have to worry about being absorbed by a larger, meaner company. There would be to each as they need and from each as they can give, you know, like there wouldn't be this competition that is inherent in capitalism. And I think that would kind of make it more easy for an, a boss to, to be altruistic. You know, that would make it more easy for a, an owner of an institution to really have an altruistic life and that they aren't leading towards gobbling up another group of people. I, I suppose like the thing that I appreciate about capitalism is that the biggest proponents of it as an ideology, they claim it as altruistic. And I don't believe that for a second. But I would say that regardless of whether or not you are altruistic in operating under a capitalist system, it's still something that works. It's, it's like this, this force of nature that's like the wind, where you can harness it for good or for evil, but it's going to operate on its own, regardless of whether or not the people who are behind it are good or evil, so to speak. But with, with socialism, it's, it kind of only works if people behind it are altruistic. And so, like, would you say that I'm wrong to take that approach of supporting an ideology that works regardless of the choices that people make? I would argue actually that it doesn't it doesn't work and regardless of people and behind it and the people that the choices that those people make I think often you see the failure especially now the days of the failure of late stage capitalism and how unsustainable it really is it relies on you know 
nigh infinite resources, which we don't have. It relies on, you know, exploitation of people who will eventually demand rights. It relies on a lot of stuff that is unstable and is unpredictable, and it won't continue to work. And it has failed in the past, and it will fail again. It failed in 2008, failed in the 30s. You know, it's failing now to provide people with everything that they need. You know, there's shortages all over the place because some people have more to spend than others, and they can hoard, and they can prevent others from having what they need. Capitalism is inherently flawed, and it will fail, and it has failed in you know, I think that it's constantly needing to be bailed out by the government. <laughs> I think if capitalism was truly a thing that worked so well, it wouldn't rely on public money to keep going every now and then. It would work autonomously, but it, it really doesn't. Capitalism does need to be bailed out, and usually by tax money, by socialism. And as for uh, socialism only working if people are altruistic, it certainly works better if people believe in it, and it certainly works better if you have partisans who are committed to it, and proletariat are committed to it, and everybody else is committed to that system. However, and this is potentially, I guess, the one dark side of socialism, the state being able to, to use coercive force to, to maintain the, the system working is a power of a socialist nation, a collectivist nation. If some people are not altruistic, if they are determined to try and undermine the system, try and undermine their fellow people, then the state would be able to enforce uh, laws to against that person, you know, to prevent that sort of undermining from taking place, to make sure that everyone contributes equally and to their ability, to the best of their ability. So certainly I think it works better when people are altruistic and, you know, can lead properly and to lead well and to make people believe in what they're doing so that that sort of thing isn't necessary. But if it is necessary, then, you know, the it will continue to work regardless, and it will continue to work for most people. I think most people need those things and to have access to welfare and to have access to whatever they need from a socialist nation, then they are willing to contribute. But if then a person is not altruistic and wants to suck off of those things without contributing, then, you know, that won't, in a proper Marxist nation, that wouldn't fly. That would not work. That would that person would be removed from that system. And that happens a lot in capitalist systems as well. I mean, there's constantly a war on, on people who are trying to undermine different systems in the United States. And the United States is like the highest incarcerations of any country in history and certainly any country today. And it's a capitalist nation, you know, it's, it's not a free nation. Freedom is a very much a, a thing that is, it depends on how altruistic your nation strives to be rather than how altruistic you think you are. You know, it, it's certainly, uh, freedom is, comes from uh, how devoted people are to each other. And America's capitalist system, it's not created freedom. Capitalism has not created freedom in America. It's created an incredible amount of incarceration and slavery in its history. It's created a lot of inequality. I, I suppose that's a good way to transition into the final point that I want to make. So way back at the beginning of this episode, we talked about how you came to embrace socialism as a valid ideology. And I, I suppose I want to cap things off by talking about how I chose to embrace capitalism as a valid ideology. And I, ironically enough, it, it happened, I would say, during the period of time that I was on welfare. Because during that time, I was having my expenses 
uh, paid for by the government. I'm, I'm very glad that I was able to take on that kind of option. But at the same time, they were only able to pay me just enough to pay my bills, pay for my groceries. Even then, I, I still had to uh, take on a few food bank donations. And it, it just like I couldn't save up to go travel or go hang out with my friends in some sort of entertainment facility. If I had some sort of emergency take place in my life, which there were several, I lost a library book for a couple of days. And I thought that like I had to end up paying $40 to replace that book which was money that I didn't have. There was uh, an incident where PayPal, I tried transferring money out from my account there into my bank account, and they ended up siphoning money from my bank account and putting my bank account into overdraft. And it's, it's like times like those that just made me feel like I'm glad that I'm not out on the streets, but at the same time, I can't keep living like this. Right. I would say that your your circumstances then weren't due to socialism. Your circumstances then were due to unemployment as a result of the instability of capitalism, I'd say. Um, in a socialist society, like we're, it would be more determined, the state would be more determined to find you a station that provides to you everything you need, grants you like a, a sense of fulfillment in your life, and you would never be needing in that same way. You would never be desperate. Our conditions of socialism that we have today, which we are, I think, very lucky to have, we're able to provide you enough to survive then. And so you weren't in a point where you actually went homeless and you weren't at a point in which you actually like could not eat. It was enough to get you back on your feet again in a socialist world, or sorry, in a, in a capitalist world, and then to find employment later down the road. But not having as much as you 100% needed, or at least not to the point that you were fulfilled, I think was more of a result of the scenario of having it so difficult to find employment, you know, and having it so difficult to have as much money as you really needed because of our capitalist system, you know, making it very difficult to live without working. I think that in a purely socialist state, you would have more to support you in a time like that. And you would also find a lot easier to find employment that would be able to provide more for you as you needed. But I, I would still say that even if I had gone through college, gone into a degree, because I, if I might be totally honest, I suck at entry-level work, like fast food, retail. I went out and uh, the government paid for me to get a degree. They helped me find a job working as a data analyst at some sort of government facility. And I, I had all my needs taken care of. I had free health care. I don't think that I would still feel a sense fulfilled. of freedom. Uh, yeah, fulfilled or just like the sense of freedom. I'm like, I know this is a very low bar to uh, I understand, yeah. Like yeah. De declare freedom, but when I was working at the water park for the, the seven months that I was there, I did feel that sense of freedom, that burden lifted off my shoulders, not by a whole lot, but there was enough. And there was enough that was there to make me hopeful for the future until I got right, fired. But it's, it's, it's not exactly until you got fired, until you, in, like, it's not guaranteed. It's not a real freedom. It's a, it's an artificial thing that it, you know, you might be happy when you're working for a corporation for a little while, but you know, the insecurity of capitalism is always there. It's an inherently insecure system and it's an inherently unstable system, which cannot provide everything it needs for everybody forever. It will sooner or later let people down. 
you know, whether that's consumer or the worker or anybody else. And like I myself have never had to rely on welfare, which I'm very thankful for that. You know, I have often been unemployed and I have, you know, often struggled to find work. And it's definitely something that is challenging because I try and find work that I believe in and stuff like that. And I've always, I've often had to compromise those beliefs as well. And I think that is more to do with the challenge of a capitalist world than it is to do with like, like I, I think the hero in your story is really that welfare was there when you needed it. If it wasn't there, then it would have been a much worse situation. And the situation you were in originally being unemployed to start off was a result of an unstable capitalist system that cannot provide everything it needs to for everybody. When they're working, yeah, and when they're, you know, I would say being exploited, because I think even like, you know, when we were working together, like the company that we worked for for a little while certainly took more than it gave sometimes. Certainly didn't match exactly, I think, you know, like the wages didn't match exactly what was being asked of people. And eventually it treats those people as disposable workforce, you know, whereas in a socialist state, no one would be considered disposable. As for fulfillment, I mean, I think there's still room for creative expression in a socialist state. I think the Soviet Union, that was one of their greatest failings was their censorship of creative expression, their censorship of ideas and stuff like that was sort of inherently undemocratic. And I think that socialism should be democratic and should be expressive and creative. I think that, you know, in a world that could see the potential of everybody, I think a socialist state would see the potential of you and what you're doing right now talking to people and like having a creative expression in a podcast or anything else like that and uh, being able to provide you with what you need for that kind of service which is a service i think that is necessary and i think a service that could be subsidized by a, a marxist nation i mean a capitalist nation is always going to have unemployment and it's just how it is when you have a profit system that like a system that relies on profits and relies on exploitation and stuff like that. You're going to always have companies letting people go. You're always going to have companies absolving other companies and firing off the people they don't like or don't meet their standards or whatever. It's all a very arbitrary and artificial thing what keeps people employed in capitalism. And it's not in any way permanent or stable. It's always going to lead to people being employed for a while and then not being employed and struggling to find a way to pay for that overdue book or whatever. It's going to challenge people living in a capitalist society and it has and it always will because it requires people to, to always have some kind of station that exploits them or to be suffering for not being exploited. <laughs> But is that an, an inevitability for like everyone? No, no, I don't think in a, I think in a in a state that embraces socialism, we'd be able to provide more for people who are being challenged by some kind of circumstance that is beyond their control. And I think that you would not have the, the employment of people would not be so arbitrary, it wouldn't be so artificial. Um, you wouldn't have like a person that was trying to find something wrong with you to fire you and to get someone else in to pay them less, you know, to increase their bottom line. They would employ you. There'd be no incentive for them to get rid of you. There would be no incentive for them to find someone else to do your job. That would create a greater job security for everybody in which everybody would have a more stable station in life. Okay. So like as someone with autism, as someone who gets into personal conflicts with other people fairly regularly, are you sure that like a socialist institution government would be able to take a look at someone like me and say to themselves, we have a place for you? I think absolutely your place would be more secure, even if you were working like some kind of retail thing in which you were in 
contact with people every day, you know, like obviously I guess retail would be a different thing in the socialist world, but I mean, like if you had a job that was comparable to retail, right? If you had a job where you were like working in a market of some kind, or, you know, you were working in some kind of service industry, consumers wouldn't be the same way. They wouldn't. And also bosses like, you know, like owners, there wouldn't be like owners that have the same concerns about, Hey, is this person giving my company a good image? Hey, is this person making people comfortable or whatever? Or is this person have some social cues that they're missing or something like that? And I want to get rid of them because they're making my clients feel uncomfortable or something like that. The, that all is, comes from a profit motive standpoint. They want people to be comfortable there because if they're not comfortable there, they'll go to a competitor. As soon as there's no competitors, as soon as everything is uniform, everything is uh, nationalized, your station, as long as you do your job and do your job well, there's no incentive to remove a person because, you know, they're not attractive or they're not socially cued the way other people are. There's just no reason to do that. There's no competition. There's no, we're the best, we're the prettiest, we're the friendliest, whatever. Everyone would be able to uh, just kind of accept one another, I think, in a different way. We're not really accepted under this capitalist system at all, I don't think, for our flaws. Everyone has flaws. And in a capitalist system, especially at workplaces, we're always told to mitigate our flaws, to hide the things that make us different or challenged compared to other people. Because if we express those things or if those things come up, then it threatens our job and it threatens, you know, our security in life. I don't think that that would be an inherent thing in any kind of country or any kind of system. I think that definitely in a socialist system, the acceptance of that would be a lot, a lot higher. There wouldn't be as much of a, an obsession with image and with stuff like that at all. I think that's everything I, I want to talk about then. We've been talking for, it feels like almost two hours. No worries. <laughs> But thank you for coming on the show, Corey. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking I, about all this I, stuff. I still don't agree with a lot of what you're saying, but at the very no, least, fine. you're not That's holding the theme up a of the sign. podcast, right? Yeah, because we're not the same. <laughs> <laughs> but at the very least, you're not holding up a sign. You're not giving me the finger. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 absolutely. I, I, I think that, again, like I, like I mentioned earlier, I think that like one of the things I really believe in is discourse, and I really believe in democracy, and I really believe in people being able to like openly share ideas. That's certainly one of the greater failings of the Soviet Union, but there's lots of other countries, I think, that are socialist, at least, or maybe even Marxist, that do embrace, you know, discourse and do embrace democracy. That's probably like, like China. <laughs> well, no, more like more like Sweden or like Sweden is certainly a socialist nation even more than Canada is and like Cuba also also has a very incredibly strong discourse and incredibly strong forum for people's different ideas and stuff. So, I don't think that censorship is inherently marxist or anything like that. Again, I would say that's also an inherently capitalist thing too. <laughs> Because uh, corporations and certain rich people are very concerned about what you say about them. <laughs> and so, but no, I enjoy, yeah, I'm really happy to come on and talk about things, even if we don't agree on everything. Like, it's really important, I think, to have discourse and stuff. So thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming. Yeah. See you guys later. This has been Because We're Not the Same, a podcast hosted, produced, and edited by Nathan Raymond Ray, with special guest Corey Knight. To listen to more episodes, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Verbal, iHeartRadio, or Podbean. You can also visit our Facebook page or our website, bwntscast.wordpress.com. If you're interested in coming on the show as a guest, feel free to reach out to us and we'll see about having you on. Thank you for listening.